Welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the Global Head of Strategy here at Credit Sites, and today I am delighted to be joined by Todd Duvik. Todd is one of my former Wells Fargo colleagues, and he is now at Credit Sites with me as a senior analyst covering the auto sector and also capital goods. Today, we are going to be talking all about autos, which Todd, I'm sure, was a really interesting sector to pick up coverage of over the past couple of years. So Todd, thank you so much for joining me. You bet, good to be here, Winnie. All right, so let's get right into it. Todd, we all know that there's a lot of data flying in all directions lately, some mixed messages. If you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic, credit market, or sector-specific data for 2023, what would you wanna see and why? Yeah, great question. And actually, I'm going to say two, but they're related. So the first one really is unemployment data or, or job growth, mainly from the standpoint that so much of the debt in the auto sector is tied not to the auto company themselves, but to their captive finance subsidiaries. And so, you know, things like default rates, charge-offs are key metrics that we watch. Those have been really pristine the last couple of years. So we expect those to normalize to pre-pandemic levels throughout the year as consumer spending starts to taper off, the excess savings starts to get depleted and you know consumer balance sheets normalize. However, if you know we have a spike in unemployment, which some forecasters are calling for the back half of this year, we could actually see the, the default rates and the charge-off rates not only normalize, but go to uh, more stress levels. And so that's really what I would like to see. And I you know, I think that depends on a couple of things. It depends on inflation, it depends on interest rates, depends on consumer balance sheets. If, if they're really going to start to deteriorate more so than what is currently envisioned. So, you know, that's really what we'd like to see. And then, so that's what I talked about on the captive side, but also for the automakers, of course, key is going to be auto sales themselves. And auto sales the last three years have been below where they were in, in 2019. That's really been kind of a supply side effect that they can't get the parts to make the vehicles. They're starting to get more parts. We still haven't seen sales normalize back to where they were pre-pandemic, but they're expecting growth. The automakers are expecting growth this year. However, if consumer spending really starts to taper off, we may not see the growth that, that is expected. And so we could have an increase in inventories on dealer lots. Sales could taper off and you know profitability could really be affected. So those are the two things that I would really like to get a sneak preview on. Really helpful. You are not alone in the unemployment data sneak preview. That has been an answer that a few analysts have given me all for kind of different reasons. 
So that's definitely a kind of universal trend. I was one of the unfortunate people who had to go out and buy a car last year at those elevated prices and kind of supply constrained. So I'm going to be a little annoyed if this consumer spending drops off and all of a sudden there's, you know, a plethora of inventory to choose from. And I bought it exactly the wrong reason. But, you know, that's what happens when you drive a 2011 and you expect, oh, I'll just get another year. Sometimes you're not going to get another year. So let's move into your sector recommendation. How are you telling investors they should be positioned in the auto sector for 2023? And why are you positioned that way? Yeah, great question. So we have what you could consider not to be a real bold recommendation. We're market performing the auto sector from the standpoint that we still think that it's going to be a good time in the auto sector from a fundamental standpoint. We think profitability, which has been very strong the last couple of years because of what I mentioned earlier, demand was strong, supply was on the weak side. So you had this supply-demand imbalance really the last couple of years. We think that the profitability is still going to be fairly robust this year, um, and but we do think that it's going to be down year over year, still going to be very strong, but not as strong as it has been the last couple of years because supply-demand conditions we expect to normalize. But if you take a look at the valuation, it is still one of the wider trading sectors relative to similarly rated peers. Whether you look at the uh, the overall IG corporate index, if you look at the uh, the A-rated index or the triple B-rated index for their peers, it is still relatively wide uh, trading. And I think primarily is because, you know, this is a sector that historically you really don't want to own going into a recession. And you know, so from the standpoint that expectations are generally, it's going to have a recession in 2023, whether it's a soft landing, it's a hard landing, whatever. Most investors think, okay, recession in the in the not too distant future, let's get out of our auto risk. I think this time it's different, mainly because of that supply demand imbalance that I talked about. And the other key factor is, you know, this is a an industry that For the most part, automakers historically have really fought tooth and nail for market share. But what they've learned over the last couple of years is as long as they maintain discipline on their inventory, then they can have incentive spending, sales incentives that are going to be de minimis compared to what they've been historically. And that just falls right up to the bottom line. So to to put a little context around that prior to the pandemic, sales incentives as a percentage of the list price of a vehicle were anywhere from 11 to 12%. Today, they're about 2%. So that 10% differential is, it just falls to the bottom line in terms of the operating margin. So I think what we're hearing from the automakers and GM really has been at the, at the front of this is they want to maintain their dealer inventories at levels that have enough selection for consumers, but not so much that consumers really have the power to say, well, yeah, I like that, but you know, I'm going to go to another dealer. I can get a better price. And, and all of a sudden those incentives, which are currently about a thousand dollars per vehicle, go up to $4,000 per vehicle. And then, you know, that comes right off their profitability. So they're really trying to manage the dealer inventory. And again, going back to GM, an example from just today, they said they're going to idle a plant for two weeks 
to help manage the dealer inventory. So not only are they saying the right things, they're actually following through with those talks. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what we expect from the fundamental standpoint. Um, so we don't think it's a, a run scenario where we're saying underperform the auto sector. We're comfortable with the risk. Yes, we're going to see some deterioration in terms of the, the loan portfolios of the captives, but we think that's manageable. So we're comfortable. And, you know, we think the other factor that I'll mention is if you take a look at um, the rating spectrum of what we cover all the way from Toyota, which is high, high A to Ford, which is double B. Last year, the outperformance was on the higher rated. We think that the outperformance this year is going to be on the lower rated names. So that's why we like names like General Motors. That's our top pick in, in the space. And, you know, if you take a look at where they trade relative to the triple B index, they still trade about 40 to 50 back. And we think that's really good value. Yeah, absolutely. I think that your point around kind of the defensiveness or lack of defensiveness of autos in prior recessionary scenarios is really important. And it resonates with a lot of conversations that I have with clients on the strategy side who frequently ask me, you know, what's your outlook for a recession? And really the the question is not, will there be a recession or not? It's what does, what does a recession look like now? What does this actually mean? You know, is this the typical NBER declared recession where you see GDP shrinking and you see unemployment spiking, or is this something a little bit more nuanced, something specific to different consumer segments or different sectors? And I think that sectors like autos, which had to learn a lot of hard lessons during the pandemic, may be better positioned to kind of get through a shifting fundamental outlook rather than, you know, an outright recession. Right. All right. Let's move into more of a kind of technical conversation around new issue activity. You know, we all know that primary market activity is off to the races in 2023. What are you expecting for autos? Do you think that we're going to see a lot of new deals? Is Ford going to be tapping the market as they maybe get to investment grade status? How are we thinking about new issue activity? Yeah. So for the auto sector, you know, new issue is really in two camps. One is going to be on the automaker side. The other is going to be on the captive finance side. On the automaker side, again, it goes back to the profitability. So these automakers are all investing heavily in their EV vehicles. So, you know, they want by 2030, about 40% of their total sales to be electric vehicles. Well, that requires huge investments 20, 30, 40, $50 billion over a five to seven year period, depending on the automaker you're talking about. And in order to fund that, they really target generating the, the cash flow to make those investments and then generating free cash flow after those investments. And those investments are largely going to be CapEx, but you also have joint ventures for battery. But the point is, you know, on the automaker side, we really don't envision a lot of new issuance because. They like to keep a lot of liquidity. They like to keep their auto side leverage relatively low, especially on a net leverage basis, usually around one times or less on a net leverage basis. And so, you know, any issuance from the auto side, especially with where rates are, is going to be fairly modest, either to refinance upcoming maturities or if they have some needs for, you know, additional investments for something like a joint venture or something along those lines. But we expect relatively modest issuance on the auto side. 
on the captive finance side, you know, that's paper that typically is going to be seven years or in at the longest dated, it's going to be 10 years. And they try and have it staggered so that there's going to be debt rolling off every year. So we already saw in January, we saw almost all the automakers that we cover tap the market. And typically they were going to tap in the three to five year buckets. We did see some two year issuance and, and some seven year. But so they've already tapped once. Most of these companies like a Toyota, General Motors are the two most active, but also Ford, Ford Motor Credit. They're going to tap the market several times a year. So we've seen them once. We'll probably see them another two or three times, um, you know, as much as once a quarter for two reasons. One, to refinance debt, but also because sales, we expect sales to grow. And also in this type of environment with the, with the higher interest rates, we think their penetration in terms of the amount of sales that they finance as opposed to are separately financed by banks is going to be higher because that's one of the sales incentives that they can offer is lower interest rates. And so that's going to increase our receivables, which is going to be another reason that we could see more issuance out of the captives this year compared to last year. Oh, interesting. So kind of a, a study as she goes on the actual manufacturing side of things, but on the captive finance could see a little bit of an uptick there. That's right. And is, I mean, is M&A an issue in the sector at this point? You know, it, it really isn't. Wow. What they're really focused on is trying to secure their supply chain first on the, mm -hmm. the traditional, what they call ICE vehicles, which is internal combustion engine vehicles, mm -hmm. make sure that their supply chain is secure. That's largely going to be independent suppliers, make mm -hmm. sure that they have those relationships. Mm -hmm. In some cases, you know, they're having to uh, provide a little support mm -hmm. for some of the weaker suppliers, but you're yeah. talking about, you know, millions of dollars in the tens or low hundreds of millions. You're not talking about major money for, you know, the companies of the scale that I'm talking about. What you may see on M&A would be either acquiring someone on the EV side, either, you know, not so much battery suppliers because most of those are going to be joint ventures that they have, but it's going to be more along the lines of raw materials, either helping a company invest in sourcing raw materials, you know, rare earth minerals or some other components that they need because a lot of that currently is controlled by China. And, you know, the automakers, whether it's a Japanese, a Korean or U.S. automaker or a European automaker, they're really trying to make sure that they have access to that, especially with the, the highly charged political environment that we're in. And so that's, it's not really M&A, but it's more these types of investments that don't really fall in CapEx. You know, they, they have increased over the last several years. Yeah, I mean, that expansion into the world of electric vehicles has just so many implications for the supply chain and relationships with China are definitely not in the best shape right now, although trade with China is at record highs. So it's interesting when we think about kind of the geopolitical tensions and also just the realities that even as companies are trying to diversify supply chains, there's still an awful lot of you know, interconnectedness between the U.S. and Chinese economies, at least for yeah. now. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's the type of thing you can't just turn off the spigot overnight, can you? No, it's a very slowly melting iceberg for sure. So, you know, this conversation so far is fairly constructive. Autos have been through a lot the past couple of years. Relative value looks 
pretty attractive. You know, perhaps there are some risks of things slowing down a little bit as the consumer starts to shift their spending patterns. What's keeping you up at night when you think about your sector and your recommendation? You know, is there the risk that we should just be buying everything that's yieldy in the auto sector because things are going to be a-okay and we're being a little too cautious? Or, you know, is there something else that you're stuck kind of focused on? Yeah, so no, I wouldn't say just buy everything in the lower rated in the auto space. We did have an outperform recommendation on Nissan, which is really a turnaround situation. And actually, you know, in terms of a soap opera, if you want a soap opera, read about Nissan, because, you know, this is a, a company that had been controlled by Carlos Ghosn, who famously escaped a Japanese prison with some former Green Beret and his son, and is now in his home country. I forget exactly where it is, but it's, it's somewhere in Europe. But anyway, you know, obviously he's not in control of Nissan. And so basically what they've done in the three or four years since he's been in control is they've had a whole change in, in strategy and they've actually shed, shed about a third of their production capacity, which was the right thing to do. But now with the, the situation with the supply chain, semiconductor availability being fairly thin, they really haven't been able to restart their production to be able to cover even the fixed costs that they have, which are much lower than they were four or five years ago. So, you know, their profitability really depends on them being able to churn out more vehicles. They haven't been able to do that. My outperform recommendation was based on the view that they would be able to get their, their volumes up to cover those fixed costs. And so even though they've improved, it, it still hasn't covered all of their fixed costs. And, you know, their automotive profitability has been positive the last two quarters, but it's only because of favorable currency. If you strip out the currency, they're still losing money on their automotive operations. You know, the, the rating agencies have really kind of drawn the line in the sand and said, by 2023, you need to be at a certain level, which is a 5% operating margin. And if you strip out the currency, you know, it's about 2% right now. So, you know, we've got concerns for them that they could potentially be downgraded. They're only rated by S&P and Moody's and S&P has them at negative outlook. And I think it, there's a very real possibility that they could be downgraded and be a crossover credit uh, here over the next, you know, six to 12 months. So that's probably the name that keeps me up the most. Yeah. I think they're doing the right things, for the long term, but could be a short term headwind. Yeah, that's interesting. The kind of single name nature of the keep you up at night worry, I think, is also something that we've heard from a lot of analysts where, you know, we're not necessarily concerned wholesale about a sector or the economy. It's more this specific company really, you know, kind of needs to get its act together. And we're not necessarily convinced that that it's going to be able to execute in such a, a challenging economic environment as well, just kind of adding fuel to already existing pressures for sure. Does the EV transition worry you? Is this something that is kind of sticking out as, as an issue that these companies are facing? Well, so... <clears throat> It, it worries me in some respects, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of factors at play here concurrently. So, you know, on the one hand, uh, EV popularity has really been growing. 
But if you take a look at what's been available and who's been buying, it's, it's really been the more affluent customers and primarily Tesla. Uh, just last year, you had names like Ford come out with their Ford F-150 Lightning pickup, which was very popular, but still, you know, we're talking about less than 100,000 vehicles sold last year. You've got the Mustang Mach-E. And so really this year is the first year we're going to have any mass market vehicles in terms of middle middle priced for just regular consumers that are going to be available in any any real size. So I think this is going to be a real pivotal year. What concerns me is just to get to this point, you know, these companies have already invested tens of billions of dollars. And so it's not a question of, are they going to have the capacity? They're going to have the capacity to produce a million vehicles within about two years time, a million vehicles per automaker. Wow. So just to put that in context, you know, last year in the U S we sold 13.8 million vehicles. And so just to think in a couple of years, we're going to have the capacity to build, you know, about 5 million vehicles that are EVs. You know, that's, that's going to be upwards of almost a third of the market because we expect market growth between last year and, and the next couple of years. But, you know, that's pretty quick ramp. That is a very quick ramp. And it also goes to the question of the, the broader infrastructure to support all these EVs. Is there is there a scenario in which auto manufacturers have to start having joint ventures with utility companies and everyone else who is going to actually be providing charging stations? Like, how, how is this going to work? That's a great question. Everyone's trying to figure that out. Now, you know, the automakers, they have invested some, and in fact, they're, they're requiring their dealers in many cases to uh, add one or in some cases, two charging stations at the dealerships. Mm-hmm. But you and I know that, you know, we're used to filling up a car with, with gasoline or diesel mm-hmm. in some cases, but primarily gasoline at a gas station that's much more convenient than going mm-hmm. to a dealership. Not many people are want to go, wanting to go to a dealership to charge their vehicles. So mm-hmm. to your point, yes, there's, there's got to be greater capacity for charging vehicles. Mm-hmm. Now, one solution is going to be uh, consumer homes in their garage, but mm-hmm. not everyone lives in a, in a house that has a, a garage. You live in apartments. Um, and so you still need charging stations and mm-hmm. you have, have to have fast charging stations available where you can charge your battery in, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, as opposed to, you know, several hours, mm-hmm. no one's going to be willing to wait several hours uh, mm-hmm. for charging. So yes, there's a lot of investment. Now the inflation reduction act, which was passed in August, that has funds for, for subsidizing growth in the uh, charging network. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to be a, a partnership between the federal and the state governments to allocate that and so a lot of that is in process, but it's going to take a couple of years to really, you know, see that growth in the charging network. And I think it's one of these chicken and egg things. Mm-hmm. You have to see the charging network before, you know, a lot or maybe the majority of the population is comfortable buying an electric vehicle. Because yeah. it's one thing if you can pull it into your garage and charge it overnight, mm-hmm. but people that don't have that ability you know, they're going to want to see a little more robust charging network than what we have today. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for anyone who may take a road trip longer than 300 miles, 400 miles, right. the you know ability to have a reliable charging network is is pretty crucial. I mean, that was one of the things that definitely made me think perhaps not yet for the the EV. It's been interesting to me that we haven't seen more companies pursuing hybrid strategies. Like yeah. we have the hybrid technology, it makes a lot of sense. It's it's just kind of I feel like we're skipping a step almost in this whole transition. Yeah, no, and that's an excellent point. And you know, that's really one of the differentiating factors among the automakers. Almost everyone that I cover is going the route of EVs, kind mm-hmm. of like lemmings over the cliff. The one holdout really is Toyota, which is the largest mm-hmm. automaker in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they sell over 9 million vehicles, which is a lot more than any one. But they're the ones that are really focused most on the hybrid strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, they've done it with the, uh, the Prius historically. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, I was blown away. There are obviously lots of jokes about the Prius mm-hmm. in terms of the looks and all that kind of stuff. Their new uh, Prius that they just announced, it looks a lot more like a Kia or a Hyundai, something that I think would be much more appealing to young people. But it's also one that is sold in, in larger quantities mm-hmm. than anything else. And, you know, I think that their strategy actually is much more conservative, I guess you mm-hmm. could say, because yes, they're investing in electric vehicles, but mm-hmm. they've also got hybrids, which I think to your point is more of a kind of a transition from mm-hmm. traditional vehicles to mm-hmm. electric vehicles. So it's, you know, maybe it's an EV with training wheels. I, I like that, an EV with training wheels. So you talked a little bit about Nissan in terms of kind of trade opportunity there. Let's talk a little bit about some other names that you're recommending or telling investors to steer clear of. So do you have a pick or a pan and a carry trade in the auto sector to start the year? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I would say my pans are more on on kind of, are you going to outperform or underperform the market? And, you know, even though I just had some very favorable comments on Toyota. From a relative value standpoint, they trade very tight. And you know, if you're looking to outperform the market as a as a total yield investor or um, or an excess return investor, you're not going to do it owning Toyota. Although you know, I think the downside in terms of spreads for Toyota is limited. I would expect you know year end spreads to be about where they are, if not maybe a, a hair tighter. So and then. The other underperformed recommendation I have is on Honda. Honda is a great uh, motorcycle company, but the last four or five years, they have not made any money on their automobiles, selling the automobiles. And this is an environment where if you can't make money in autos the last couple of years, you've really got some issues. And that's, you know, that's the other reason that Honda would, despite them being A-rated, so they trade relatively tight but they're just not great from making money in autos. So, you know, that's the reason I'm more cautious on them and have an underperformed recommendation on Honda. My top pick, as I mentioned earlier, is General Motors, you know, mid to low triple B rated. And one of the reasons that they're rated so low, despite them having a a fortress balance sheet and, you know, the operating performance is really very strong is because of their geographic diversification or the lack thereof. So, Five years ago, they sold their European operations to what is now Stellantis. So really, their their footprint is primarily the U.S., North America, 
which the U.S. dominates, also China. Uh, but they really have no meaningful presence, no presence in Europe. They've got some in, in South America, but it's really their geographic diversification. But, you know, I would rather own a company that's doing really well in their home market and, you know, has for them not record margins, but if you if you look back over the last 20 years, the margins the last two years have been the strongest that they've been over the last 20 years. So that's pretty strong performance. And, you know, these, I think with their financial management team, they are the most disciplined of any of the automakers that I cover. So I really like them. And I think that, you know, quite frankly, if it hadn't been for their lack of geographic diversification, they would be higher rated. So that's really to bondholders benefit that you trade a little wide for what I think is lower risk for a really good performing company. The final name, and we just downgraded our recommendation on Ford from outperform to market perform for one reason. And, and that reason is because we had expected positive rating momentum by both S&P and Fitch this year. Both of those rating agencies rate Ford double B plus positive outlook. And so if you take a look at their reports, they're already at the levels the upgrade triggers where the rating agencies want them to be for the upgrade. However, they still have some operational challenges such that S&P, which we thought was, was the first that would upgrade them. We thought they could have upgraded them after the earnings, but they highlighted some operational issues that basically put them in the penalty box for another six months. So, you know, we still like them. We've got a market perform. I think that's the one that I would point to as far as a carry trade. That sounds sounds like a great carry trade for sure. We oftentimes see with those kind of slow play rising angel stories, it takes a long time for the ratings agencies to actually enact that upgrade. But in the time being, you get kind of outsized yield and spread for credit fundamentals that are more in line with a, a triple B than a double B company. So right. sounds like a great carry trade for sure. So let's wrap it up with words of wisdom from Todd Duvick. If you were going to give some words of advice to management teams in the auto sector in 2023, what would you tell them to do or not do? What I would tell them to do is manage your business for value, not for volume. Historically, too many of these companies have focused on volume. And I think that you have to take a look at what is going on in the industry around you. You know, in the U.S., historically, this is more my generation than your generation, but historically, you've had the big three in the U.S. Well, the big three have been getting smaller and smaller in the U.S. over the last 50, 60 years. First, you had the wave of Japanese companies, then you had the wave of Korean companies. Now, we're, we're not there yet, but very soon, we're going to have a wave of Chinese companies. And so I think the way you have to manage your business is not for the volumes. You don't want to say, well, I need to get back to the volume we had five years ago. No, you need to manage your market share and, and in your category and make sure that you have the inventory equivalent to where your demand is, not what, not what you hope to sell, but what you're actually going to sell. And that's really a focus on the value because if you focus on that, then you're going to be more profitable, even though you may not sell the same number of vehicles that you sold five years ago. So value over volume is the message I would give. 
That's a great message. And with that, we will conclude our conversation on the auto sector. Todd, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining me. And we hope everyone enjoyed our conversation with Todd Duvick, Senior Analyst Covering Autos. Thank you, Winnie. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.